0: Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data. The human side of data analytics. Today I talked to James Hodson, CEO and board member of AI for Good an organization that aims to use AI to affect meaningful social change. We discuss how the organization defines social good and how corporations and academia are hampered in their ability to push social innovation and how AI for Good seeks to fill that void. We discuss a few of their projects, especially around diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Companies have inherent structural biases in hiring and promotions, etc. AI for Good makes it more transparent and quantifiable, a necessary step for improving it. We also discuss why public confidence in AI algorithms, such as social media, is at an all-time low, and how we could improve data science education in order to better align algorithms with societal improvement. So, on to the conversation.
1: James Hodson, welcome to Who's Your Data? Thanks for being here. Um, I was introduced to you through a mutual friend of ours, Claudia Perlick who suggested that we talk because I thought there was gonna be some really interesting things for us to talk about in regards to your organization, AI for Good. So thank you for being here.
2: Well, thank you for the invitation.
1: I'm very happy to be uh, to be talking about this stuff. So my first question to you is, what is AI for Good and how did it come about?
2: Back in, you know, seven, eight years ago, I and, and other close friends of mine in, in the AI research community were observing a phenomenon that I would describe as uh, the academic community becoming more antsy about how their work was being used in general and how they might have an impact on broader social challenges than the industrial types of challenges that are being funded mostly. So the academic research community in AI receives most of its money through NSF, DARPA, IARPA, and Mm -hmm. industrial grants from people like Google, Facebook, IBM, Microsoft, the usual suspects. And we were hearing all over, well, I wish that I could apply my work to water conservation. I wish I could apply my work to wildfire mitigation. I wish I could apply my work to, uh, you know, encouraging equity and kind of pushing people to rethink their belief systems in the workplace. Each of us had a different perspective on on how this should look. But what we all realized is that there aren't the channels in place to allow the kind of cutting edge state of the art academic work to have an impact on the social agenda in the same way as it has an impact on the industrial and military industrial agenda. So we started having conversations with researchers, with policymakers. with NGOs around how AI might have an impact in this area. What, what, is the, uh, what are the available channels for high tech, you know, new technologies um, to make their way into the social good arena? Now, I would add to that that AI in 2012, 13, 14, was starting to trickle into the enterprise people started talking about AI a lot more than they had done in the past in terms of a mature business technology, right? People obviously have um, used AI in various settings since uh, the 60s and 70s, um, Mm -hmm. types of of AI, of course, but the the word has been there, society has been aware. Uh, But it's really only since 2010 or so that businesses have started really scaling out and trying to build things in the real world that have some AI component uh, within. Now, with that awareness growing, we understood that there would be an opportunity, right? Many, many more people getting involved, the understanding, level of understanding in in society shooting up, that there would be an opportunity to harness that and put more effort behind new solutions and innovations that could impact big challenges that we had and big challenges that existed you know, 10 years ago, like climate change still exists today. Uh, big challenges that existed like gender equality still exist today. Uh, and in fact, you know, in, in many cases, you can argue that uh, these problems have been getting worse, right? We've maybe mm-hmm. had a decade of, uh, of ignorance in, in some sense in terms of our progress on, on some of these big challenges. And, and so we came together in 2014 at Stanford for a set of workshops where we tried to lay out a roadmap, how to tackle big social challenges with advanced technologies and AI being one of the main advanced technologies that's out there right now, obviously robotics and other types of automation fit into this, right? The whole IoT sphere. Uh, so, so there are lots of, there's a web of technologies, if you will, that come together uh, to have the potential to have breakthrough impact on some of these large challenges. Now, back then, we decided that it wasn't our job to define what the big goals, the challenges were. And it was very convenient because the United Nations had just coined the sustainable development goals as uh, the continuation of the millennium goals. And it made sense for us to take a taxonomy that 196 nations had already signed up to. So uh, with that as our framework, with that as kind of the baseline of what problems need to be solved in the world in, in order for us to move towards equitable, fair, you know, opportunities for all, right? globally speaking, Mm -hmm. um, the SDGs made a lot of sense. Uh, Since then, we created the AI for Good Foundation and it's been quite a few people involved from the research community and and other areas uh, right from the very beginning. So it's not just me. Uh, Claudia has been, Claudia Perlish has been been with us from the very beginning, as have many other kind of big names in, in the research side. And we have, chosen to take a three-pillar approach to our impact as a public charity. Uh, The first pillar is education, which is how do we help people to understand the impact of these technologies and understand how they can go about leveraging these in order to have a positive impact in whatever areas they're working on. Research, which is about building kind of the foundations, the pillars that you need in order to support that societal change and in order for it to be able to have an impact. And the last area that we focus on, and this has been our largest area of, of growth relative to the others uh, in terms of uh, focus in the past two or three years, is policy. Pol- policy represents the rules right by which the game is, is played. Right? It allows us to create the incentives that push us in the right direction. And it allows us to be aligned on what our core beliefs as a society are, right? Where where do we want to get to? And so laying that foundation, building the rule set that will help AI to have a more positive impact across the spectrum of problems is an area where we've been getting more and more involved both at the national level, uh, municipal level, with other NGOs and within the research space, um, helping people to think and talk about AI and build in a way that is uh, going to
1: benefit the largest number of people with the minimum downside. I have a lot of questions about what you just said. I know that in a previous life, you directed a team of 20 researchers at Bloomberg. And so coming from that, I have to ask you, do you think, you know, a lot of corporations talk about being socially aware and trying to utilize their technologies for social good. Is it possible to be socially aware with technology in such a corporate setting or does that tend to be more paying lip service? I'd say it's both. So my my experience
2: is that in the right culture, large organizations can have a huge impact in terms of moving the agenda forward in areas that are relevant to their business. At Bloomberg in particular, I'd say that Bloomberg does have a culture of impact. Uh, Bloomberg does um, from the inside out kind of really try to build on big ideas, ideas that are bigger than the finance industry. And obviously, uh, Mike Bloomberg himself has poured an enormous amount of effort over the years into areas like ocean sustainability, um, healthier financial practices around the world. Uh, I think that Bloomberg as an organization does have a culture of trying to impact broader than its uh, financial uh, market mandate. However, it's not always like that. And it's not like that certainly at all organizations. Um, You know, in in my life in the last decade or so, building AI for good, working with many organizations out there, what we've noticed is that uh, on an industrial side, Most of what we see is related to marketing dollars, right? So you have to always look at where the budget is coming from for these initiatives. If it's coming from the marketing department, usually means that it's about selling, right? And it's about building the right funnel so that people are more likely to come and buy from you than they are to buy from somebody else. Mm -hmm. If it's coming out of an operating budget or a product budget, or it's actually related to the core mission of a company, then we do see alignment. Right. Uh, So take a company like Amazon, when it comes to Amazon, understanding its supply chain, logistics, packaging, those areas, it's an extraordinarily socially conscious company, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to labor equity, gender equity, and other areas, it's more likely to be from a marketing perspective than it is to be from an operational perspective. Right. And the same goes with, uh, you know, where to set up factories, how to negotiate with cities and, and so on. Ultimately, right. In order to keep shareholders happy and despite huge advances in ESG and impact investment over the last decade, most investment happens chasing operational efficiency today. Of course. Rather than kind of really broad sweeping. What do we want society to look like 10, 20, 30 years from now? Right. Very few investors have a portfolio that's optimized along that dimension, even in the impact investment space. I think we all would like that our decisions reflected our beliefs. Right. And we would all like to believe in a better in a better world for as many people as possible. And there are certain human beliefs that are both incontrovertible in terms of what we would like for ourselves and for others, and the fairness that we would like to see in the world, that then very rarely make it through consistently to the behaviors that we show, and especially the consumption behaviors that we show. Um, We're we're very lazy when it comes to deciding, right, on one product versus another along socially aware dimensions. And most product decisions are still made on fundamental quality of product for its use and the price. And that's actually why a lot of the interventions that the AI for Good Foundation pushes are mechanism design based. They are incentive system based. How do we create incentive compatible structures through which we can influence behaviors so that people act more accordingly to the type of social structures they would like Hmm. to see in the future? That's a very good point one might argue that the majority of the innovation that we do as an organization is actually in the structure of the deployments and how we help people behaviorally with nudges rather than in advancing the state of the art in AI for which of course there are tens or hundreds of thousands
1: of people who can do that just as well as we can. Right. So you are trying to push them in the right direction in terms of behavior change, to be more socially aware. Yeah,
2: that's, I would say that, uh, you know, another way to put it is that we're trying to trick governments, companies, human beings to do better by themselves in spite of themselves with advanced technology, Mm -hmm. but that's not going to be our mission statement anytime
1: soon. You had mentioned earlier that when the the organization was, was first being founded in 2014, that AI was still a maturing discipline and that uh, I think you know, there were requirements for maybe cleaner scientific experimentation. And as you said, less focus perhaps on corporate or military interests and doing more for the fundamentals of AI and how they can relate to, to social good. Do you feel that that's changed today in 2021 looking uh, almost a decade back? is ai more a more mature discipline and uh, where do you think it's going let me be okay let me let me take a step back and explain kind of what i
2: meant in, in mm-hmm. like back then and and how things have changed relative to that now so one of the big issues that i saw in, in 2010 2012 time period mm-hmm. was that a lot of scientific experimentation in the computational disciplines was done with soft benchmarks, not following scientific method, as in not really having a like a disprovable hypothesis that you could really tackle and and therefore build upon as a community. A lot of the experimentation was kind of fragmented. People would chase after problems that were already kind of solved and not that interesting, right? The communities, especially in the academic world, would get really stuck behind uh, yeah. pushing F score as the main metric right. of concern, uh, trying to show that I'm a little bit better than the NIPS paper that came out last year, or NeurIPS paper, sorry. It, it kind of, it locked these communities into a very low level of innovation. Um, and the academic community in particular, because of how it's structured, because of the departmental structure, because of the tenure based structure, locks even early students into building on somebody else's research agenda in an incremental fashion. And very few people get to really stake a claim on a new area and build out something that's fundamentally useful in a broader setting. The understanding of the causal bounds between the behavior that we observe and the variables that we're using in order to explain, right? Being able to actually understand what constitutes a causal channel, right? Versus Mm -hmm. correlation, which in many machine learning problems doesn't really matter, right? Correlation is is king. In most societal problems, the causal structure is king, right? And unless you can get down to that and be able to explain it to communities in a way that is transparent in terms of Mm -hmm. policymaking, Right, and shows them the beneficial impact they're gonna get, get from it, then it doesn't matter that you can show your precision and recall numbers going up. Right. Right. Can you a- apply economic models to the errors that your statistical model is making in order to understand, not just that you got you know, 12 things wrong, but what was the relative cost mm. right, and risk profile of getting those things wrong Versus what you got right, because in surgery, getting the well, 99.999% of things right, but getting like the one critical thing that actually mattered wrong, is not a 99.999%
1: accuracy success right.
2: And that's where we were in 2010, 2012. It was very much basic statistics being applied incorrectly in many in many cases, to do experiments that weren't relevant to societal contexts and couldn't be transferred to those contexts. Fast forward to today, there is definitely more overlap between the economics communities and the machine learning communities and AI more generally. However, these communities have also grown enormously, right? The number of students piling into some kind Mm -hmm. of AI-related or computationally related courses at universities, even though the underlying number of computer science graduates is roughly stable.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So proportions of computer science graduates across the US have been pretty much flat for the last 20, 25 years, maybe even longer. We're getting a lot more people, for example, attending NeurIPS, ICML, KDD, right? So loads more PhD students going into machine learning than than ever before. Loads more papers being published than ever, ever before. And I would say that the proportion of good to bad is staying approximately equal, which means that loads more people are publishing. And as a result, we're getting a significant number of better papers than than we were getting before. But because like so many more people are publishing,
1: the amount of garbage is increasing at a massive rate also. So when you're talking about good papers, do you mean that they are impactful in terms of the subject matter? Do you mean that it's good science? Um, I mean, both.
2: I mean, that it's actually a scientific experiment that is valid and relevant, right? That actually shows that the methodology is better than the methodology that exists and clearly defines in what circumstances that's true. And secondly, that the application of it is valid from the perspective of uh, showing that the problem is solved with the methodology as opposed to piggybacking on a previous methodology that had its own flaws and showing just a table of
1: results. And you mentioned earlier, which I wonder if this has changed, the the incentive structure in academia in terms of finding impactful studies to do. The things that that a department chooses to study is based off of what they can get grants for, what the uh, faculty is interested in. There's a hundred reasons beyond just whether or not it's innovative work or can be impactful work. Do you think that that has changed over time or are we still dealing with those same hurdles? I'd say
2: that the NSF has made some big leaps forward in terms of funding for fundamental work that is more relevant to the societal challenges that we're we're seeing. Gotcha.
1: Good. So the incentives
2: Um, are there to be more impactful. Yeah, um, but you do also have to remember that things like NSF grants generally benefit mature faculty much more mm. than early career faculty, because early career faculty don't have the relationships in order to be able to get the right, big NSF right. grants, and so the level of innovation in those areas tends to be lower because, like uh, you know, tenured faculty that have been around for a long time tend to have a lower innovation rate than. Yeah. I'm. This is me saying this, right? Right. Um, right. As a result, lots of younger faculty are just are struggling to get smaller grants, right? Rather than really being given the space that they need in order to try mm-hmm. something new and potentially fail, right? As right. a um, as an you know a, a, an assistant professor at MIT, you do not want to fail, right? There's right, no that'll room stop you from getting
1: grants in the future.
2: It'll stop you from getting grants. It will stop you from having postdocs. It will stop you from getting tenure. Right. Not a good thing to do. You also don't want to try to create an entirely new, you know, research agenda because that's risky, right? What if people don't want to publish it, right? right? What if people don't agree with you? So it's much better to stick to an area that your advisor was working on, grow out like your little niche within it and build that way. And then of course, you know, everybody has the dream of becoming impactful when they grow up. Seldom does it actually happen when you then grow up, when you realize that you've got many, many more responsibilities at that point, it's harder to get out of the groove that you've built for yourself. Um, So academia is not as as kind of free and able to attack these social challenges as we might think a priori, or how how we might want academia to function.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Despite all the centers for this and that that are being set up left, right, and center, it's very difficult, right, for those professors to actually have impact in a consistent way on those priorities.
1: But AI for good has the advantage of being able to be impactful in a bunch of different areas. And you had mentioned that some of the guidelines are around the UN defined sustainable development goals that uh, include things like poverty and zero hunger, and health and well-being, education, climate change, clean water and sanitation, etc. So it sounds like you have a lot of different types of projects that you could have your hand in. And so my question is, how do you choose what to work on? Or is there is there uh, types of projects that you prefer to work on? And also, what kind of data you get? Does does it matter? Do you prefer certain types over the other? What's the process? with which you decide what to work on? Very good
2: question. Let me give you a few concrete examples uh, to try to ground, right, how we think about this area and what I mean by incentivizing kind of behavioral change through the application of AI. And I'm sure we'll then get onto also kind of the ethical aspects of this and mm-hmm. you know, how we measure impact and, and kind of help society to yes. understand the impact that can be had. Um, Now, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So it's a big, big topic right now. Finally, after 40 years, 50 years, Mm -hmm. where we have an excuse through AI, right, and especially through some potentially troublesome AI applications on the web, for instance, to actually start to have open and frank conversations about equity and inclusion and what it means to us in society and what we mean by diversity and why it's important. Obviously, we've talked talked about these issues in the past, but it's only very recently with the advent of much larger data sets and data privacy becoming a concern that these conversations have actually opened up and become more honest, right? And where we're actually able to set targets and understand where we want to go specifically within the workplace, for instance, right? So we, I think as a society, we care about giving every human being the opportunity to work, right? In a work environment that is supportive of the differences that we have and maximally helps us to achieve given our skills, given what the business's Mm -hmm. objectives are. Uh, Everybody should be aligned with that kind of narrative because what kind of business doesn't want to maximize the productivity of its employees right what kind of employee doesn't want to work in an environment that is you know encouraging of differences in opinion and trying to get to the best possible solution right so again These are areas where societally speaking, spoken in general terms, everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that we want, we don't want to be choosing people along dimensions that are irrelevant to their performance on the job. However, we still consistently see that companies are or have inherent structural biases in terms of how they go about hiring, how they go about promoting, how they go about leveraging the internal skills and capabilities that they have, and also uh, in the way that their products impact the markets in which they operate, right? So although companies would want their products to be as accessible to everybody so that they can maximize the people who buy their products and spend money on their products and use their platforms and therefore maximize you know, brand loyalty and the amount of goodwill that, ha- that people have towards them, still, right, companies develop products that systematically exclude or make it very difficult for certain uh, communities to use them effectively, right? Or without kind of being marginalized through their use of this. One of the basic pieces here that is, that is missing is that it's very difficult for anybody to know what companies are actually doing, mm-hmm. right? It's very difficult for companies to know what they're actually doing. Right? In fact, most companies, don't even really hold records of who was working for them five or 10 years ago, let alone the dynamics of you know, gender or um, race or sexual orientation or age, you know any of these categories that are most likely completely irrelevant when it comes to performance on the job, but are incredibly important when it comes to promoting just societal structures and, and opportunity availability for everybody. So the number one concern that we have is how do we make this area more transparent? How do we develop structures that will give people the information they need to consider and impact the structure of these companies and the way that they choose to operate at the time when it can have the biggest change? And so in this instance, we came up with the following, which is that we have a a great partnership with a couple of, uh, of companies that are very active in the thermographics area. So understanding how companies operate, understanding the internal structure of companies, understanding kind of the, the hiring patterns within companies and the turnover rates and um, basic demographics within these areas. And so what we're able to do, what we've empirically determined that we're able to do is for about a million companies in the US, we're able to publish very granular details of the employment and human capital structure of those companies over the past 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you for Amazon, for General Electric, for Microsoft, the internal employee structure by different demographic factors across a fairly long um, kind of time period. And what we're doing, is putting that information so basically providing some some ranking measures over this so fairly basic stuff validating that our measures are actually in line with other experimental evidence separately in economics for instance so in uh in economics there is a whole line of theory around uh, or randomized controlled tests uh, around uh how hiring happens within firms, hiring bias based on doing um, resume uh, Mm -hmm. applications to to jobs. So you basically send slightly randomized applications, different names, right? Different ways of using terminology in the resume, but otherwise fundamentally exactly the same. And then you observe which people get called back and which people don't, okay? So we've teamed up with the team at uh, the economics department at UC Berkeley to essentially cross-validate The measure that we have on big data with the measures that they get by running experimental and kind of very Mm -hmm. i guess causally aware designs right from the scientific perspective and so once you can validate these measures and see that you're capturing the same underlying thing then you can be fairly confident that when you you rank you can give companies that are more aware of the structure a better place to take advantage of, kind of diversity and actually embrace that as part of their DNA. And therefore, you can show consumers, investors, employees this information at the time when they're making decisions.
1: Do you also do anything that is prescriptive with that data, uh, aside from showing and ranking, but giving a- companies any way to utilize it in order to affect change in their corporations for the ones that rank low? Precisely. So
2: we are building into this program um, with psychologists, with kind of uh, business training organizations, the ability for companies who care to actually come in, own their score, right, own their data, provide us with better data in the cases where maybe you know, our data doesn't reflect exactly what's going on internally. Maybe right. they have better data and that's fine. Yeah. And we want to provide them with the tools to be able to measure things properly internally and take action in the right way so that they can get better. You know, there is incentive not only for companies that are bad to be punished, right? By consumers having the information at the time of purchase to do the right thing uh, if right. they want to, right? And again, lots of this you know, again, if if you're lazy, but I give you two options, they're the same price, it's the same product. One of them, right, is from a company that cares deeply about diversity and promoting equity in society. And the other one is ranked very, very low, right? In some proportion of cases on the margin, this is gonna make a change. Yes. And like the more of these types of margin changes that you can push, right, the more likely it is to actually affect the underlying behavior that these companies have to take in order to be successful. On the other side, right, the more, if companies are fundamentally good, right, and they do care about these things, and the founder is not an evil person, Right. right, then they can see an opportunity, very low cost, basically free, right, to get involved and find out how they can do things differently in order to become better, right? Not only, so again, for marketing, but also from the perspective of how they do business and operationally being more efficient. right? So it's meant to be a holistic approach.
1: Are there any projects
2: that you turn down? Let's say that we, most of our projects are sourced internally, right? So mm-hmm. we, we do a lot of analysis into the areas where there is less focus outside There is an opportunity for impact, which is both behaviorally and data-wise effective. Although we get a lot of outside requests for projects, we get a lot of um, offers of data. We get a lot of um, interest in working with us. We don't set up new programs kind of overnight, but we do have a very large pool of volunteers, hundreds and hundreds of, of volunteers and we have a matching process by which we can create volunteer teams with a good mix of skills that can follow kind of our impact templates in order to get involved with external uh, projects and build that's wonderful. those that way.
1: Okay, that's wonderful. Uh, but
2: as an organization, right, we, we have programs around climate change and measuring climate change with the, with the UN uh, so measuring kind of how climate solutions are being used around the world, how effective they are. That's something where, you know, they came to us from outside and we did an mm-hmm. analysis and we decided, yes, we can have an impact on this area. It makes sense. It's missing. Right. And there's a lot of potential behavioral nudges that you can add on top of that to help countries, ministers, co- companies to do the right thing. Right. We work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. We work in food. We work in oceans and kind of ocean health, plastics, and and that area. Uh, We've got projects around open data, public health, for instance. We're doing a lot of work with cities around public health initiatives and making Mm -hmm. sure that they have the right tools in order to be able to respond in future to pandemics without it being, which, you know, frankly, I think is absurd in 2021, that most of our public health data comes from very poorly run surveys in hospitals, half-filled paper forms and web search data, which is abominable, Hmm. just completely absurd. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and so we're hoping, right, through those types of initiatives that we can also build resilience in society uh, to future catastrophes. Uh, Wildfire mitigation, these types of things also fall under, but they all have the same signature which is that there's a behavioral aspect and a kind of design of a mechanism and implementation that is different from just building a model and deploying a model.
1: But there's some real life impact.
2: Yeah, but well, it's in a context where you're able to change some fundamental structure yes. which is currently causing friction because there are loads of ways in which I can put AI into existing systems and the frictions that exist will make it a no-op,
1: basically. Right. Speaking of that, I think that possibly one of the ways that an AI system theoretically could become a no-op and uh, has to do around the confidence that people have in it. And uh, especially in today's climate, where we hear more and more about Quote unquote evil algorithms like on social media and issues of invasion of privacy or algorithms that are used to radicalize masses. What are your thoughts on this? And also, how does AI for Good avoid falling into such a trap in terms of maintaining public confidence in its methodologies and its algorithms? And, in, in, you know, there is definitely a growing number
2: of anecdotes and instances of algorithms that are completely inadequate for what they were designed to do, um, where the people who modeled, collected data, right, had maybe an interesting idea at the outset, didn't really think through the potential consequences of what they were doing and kind of the bounds of the output that they could expect. And a lot of these come from poorly bounded scientific experimentation, right? And -hmm. then premature pushing of models into a reality that doesn't fit the parameters that the scientists maybe felt were kind of representing the real world, right? So when you think about hiring algorithms for instance that are you know soft rejecting candidates based on you know pre-filters potentially to Mm -hmm. the model not even reaching a modeling stage because basically a resume is considered to not be complete unless it has x y and z which a human wouldn't really even notice but an engineer decided that that's how you define a resume a lot of these problems actually when when you get into the details, don't even reach the level of a decision that was made by an AI system, but they're already present in just the design of the system itself, right? And the context in which it was installed and run and the data which it was fed. And I am far from arguing that uh, it's not the AI, right? This is all AI. AI is the full stack, right? right? It's from when you start collecting data and you have an idea and you measure the societal, um, you know, representation that you're you're going to be dealing with all the way through to actually deploying models and getting feedback and, and making sure that your model stays relevant into the future. That's AI, right? It's the entire life cycle. There are clearly issues in many areas handling that life cycle, right? People think And are trained often in undergraduate programs to take a matrix in, apply a scikit-learn transformation, build model, Mm -hmm. test on, you know, 90-10 k-fold validation, get table out with results, done. Okay, put a Flask API around it. There you go. Now it's a real thing. Deploy on AWS. That is, and I've been saying this for more than a decade, that that was the highest risk that we could take as an engineering community is not preparing our machine learning students, data analysis students, data scientists, whatever we want to call them, with the appropriate full stack engineering knowledge and system analyst type thinking that we were preparing engineers with in the computational sciences in the 80s. So for 70s, 80s, even like 90s, you went into an engineering degree you were taught how to think about the real world in which you are implementing your ideas. Today, you're given a problem, you're told how to do a matrix transformation in order to solve it, throw it into a highly parameterized uh, deep learning system in order to get some large model that you don't really understand out the other end, check briefly that it does some of the things that you were expecting it to do
1: right. and deploy it test. into the real world.
2: Now, that's just the wrong way to do any kind of science and engineering. And a lot of that comes down to fundamentally how we're training students in academia, right? right. Now, does that does that create risk? Yeah, it creates yes, societal absolutely. risk,
1: absolutely. right? This is just like what we see basically with Facebook and the social medias where, and I agree with you that today we teach engineers or computer science what to do. We don't teach them why you should do it or not. And then you end up with ideas like Instagram for kids, which is by all accounts a horrible idea and nobody stops to think, should we even be doing this? Yes, you could do it, but what is the value of it? What is the impact and what is the risk? Right, Uh, you know, basically we've got tobacco,
2: right? We know that if we sell more tobacco we can make more money so we should optimize the addiction level of tobacco right. to make it more addictive so we get more money that's one way to think about engineering
1: right mm-hmm.
2: and in maybe in a there maybe there's a universe where that's what you should be doing but it's definitely not the universe that we put
1: it's up our universe yes
2: it's just societally the wrong thing to do and it has like from an ethics Perspective, And I don't like right. the word ethics as it's generally used in AI, especially as somebody with an undergraduate degree in philosophy. I think that when we use ethics very loosely, right? Absolutely. And,
1: and, um,
2: <laughs> most of the time, it's just a placeholder for things that we don't like, right? About right. how the world works. Right. But on the other side, it's just bad business practice, right? It's just bad. You end up with code that is unreliable. You end up with products that you don't understand, right? The risk of those products not working is not just the risk that people are gonna be upset at you or that you're gonna kill someone. It's also that, right, you will be punished and make less revenue, right, in the end. Yeah. I think we're still at the elbow of this curve. Mm-hmm. We're not at the top of the crest, I don't think things are going to get better. So you think before. it's going to
1: get worse before it gets better?
2: It's going to get worse. Now, we've actually started as an organization offering companies to run kind of audits of their infrastructure and machine learning process in the way that they model
1: mm-hmm.
2: so that uh, we can help potentially to understand the way that these decisions are being made inside organizations and help those organizations to avoid... Right or at least better evaluate the risk of the types of projects that they're taking on at the early stages.
1: Right, um,
2: and so you can think of these as kind of algorithm bias and ethics and appropriateness audits that we can right. run for organizations. So you know we we'd like to have an impact in this area. I have very strong opinions about again like what it means to be an engineer, right, and what it mm-hmm. means to be a scientist and not, not just the responsibilities that we have towards society, but the responsibilities we have to do our job well. And, and I think both of these get violated fairly regularly. And it's we have an opportunity to fix this that is that goes beyond just saying, let's put bounds around how AI is used. Right. We have an opportunity to fix it, which is put in place the right engineering cultures that prevent this from happening at the very beginning with any type of idea which creates a system or a new way of moving information and making mm-hmm. decisions regardless of how automated it is and let's use it as an opportunity to help us also de-escalate the types of biases and risks that already exist in human-based decision making systems within organizations right. which are things that we have never been able to measure before and which the current rise of data and AI actually give us an opportunity to address, which otherwise we would have left in their existing state and never thought twice about it. And people would get turned down from credit and turned down from university and all kinds of other decisions being made. And because they're human decisions, we're like, okay, it's a human decision. Well, that's not good enough either.
1: And now we're able to start questioning that more than we were before. With all of these different projects that you have and are involved with, what are some ways to get involved with AI for good for our listeners who might want to pitch in on some of these projects?
2: Right, so, so there are a few ways that, that you can get involved with, with AI for good. Um, you know, One way that, that always helps us is, is to make us part of your philanthropic uh, giving each year so that mm-hmm. uh, we can keep our operational capacity and, and actually keep building these types of programs. Other things that you can do involve actually joining our volunteer network and potentially kind of getting involved with projects that that overlap on that front. Um, some of the time we also take volunteers who have specific skills that are very relevant to projects that we're that we're building okay. into our core team and kind of build some of the our core infrastructure together. Wonderful. And where can people learn more about the organization? So you can you can follow us uh, through all of our social media handles you can go to our website at aiforgood.org and obviously you can always email me directly at hodson at aiforgood.org our team is uh, very proactive so uh, we you know like to engage and and get uh, kind of get the community
1: working with us wonderful james thank you so so much this has been very very interesting i have a million other questions maybe we'll need to do a uh, part two um, <laughs> But thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. No, thank you. Likewise, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdata now at gmail.com. That's Data now, all one word at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?